being new at something was something that I had to get comfortable with and okay with because I hadn't been new at anything in years. You have to put yourself in a position to be vulnerable because otherwise you're going to miss some steps that you have to learn. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home. Welcome to Trade Tales. In each episode, I'll be talking to interior designers about everything from nurturing creativity and finding their firm's financial footing to discovering their own version of success. This season, we're also focusing on career pivots, showcasing the changes a principal made that truly helped them spring ahead. My guest today is a designer who scaled up her business quickly, tackling full-service projects, e-design, real estate services, and podcasting in short order, all while juggling a full-time job. Then the pace began to pick up, and suddenly, her business began to feel like a many-headed monster. As she reckoned how to move forward, she realized she would have to recenter on the reason she launched her business in the first place, in order to find meaningful growth. I can't wait to share it with you. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Looking for the best variety on arts and culture? Tune in to On Creativity with Paula Wallace, a Webby Award-nominated interview series produced by the Savannah College of Art and Design, where creative icons discuss their journeys and careers. Previous guests include Christopher John Rogers, Jeremy Irons, Millie Bobby Brown, Ashley Longshore, and Ron Howard. Stream or download On Creativity wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ready to build a better design business? Join hundreds of design professionals in Business of Homes membership community, BOH Insider, to access exclusive reporting and industry analysis that will keep you competitive and connected as you grow your firm. Membership includes complimentary access to weekly educational workshops with industry experts, a subscription to BOH Magazine, and a directory of skilled trades across the country. Insiders also get discounts on BOH's industry-leading job board, which is especially helpful when you're ready to expand your team. And later this year, insiders will begin to receive exclusive invitations to private field trips to unique destinations that unlock creativity and community. Learn more and join us today at businessofhome.com slash BOH Insider. As a little girl, um, I had a Barbie dream house. The Barbie dream house had to have all the furniture. And then seeing my mom have, you know, custom drapery, furniture with the plastic on it, <laughs> all of those things I saw early on. And then at my grandmother's house, the same thing. She had custom furniture. She had a nook in her kitchen before I had any clue what a nook was. So it started kind of back then for me, seeing it at home. That's Kelly Collier-Clark. She started her career in the corporate world, but her knack for design never left her. And before long, her friends and family started to take notice. Over the years, people would say things like, oh, you missed your calling, you know, and compliment me on home. And then I started helping friends out, just giving advice. And one day, um, someone gave me their credit card and said, can you just go and do my bathroom? And I'm like, what do you mean do your bathroom? And... They just wanted me to decorate it and make it look nice. And so it kind of started from there off and on where it was just something I really loved and it was more of a passion for me. Years later, the perfect window of opportunity presented itself to turn that passion into a career. 
I didn't think I had the time to even really take it serious enough to explore until my daughter went away to college and I didn't have anyone else to really mother or nurture or take care of except for myself. And I had all this time on my hands and I decided that I was going to go to school and I went and took design classes and loved it and started the business while I was taking the courses and it was history from there. In early 2019, Kelly officially launched her business. I wanted to talk to her about the emotional journey of paring down her offerings, how she's learned to become comfortable with being new at something, and how she's finding joy on the journey to success. You launched your design business while working a full-time job. And instead of easing into it, which I think is a story I've heard a lot, you kind of came out of the gate with everything. You had it kind of all packaged, all ready to go. Can you tell me everything that you built into that business when you first launched and why that felt like the right way to go? Yes. Whatever it is I decide to do, I think I, my brain always goes to full throttle mode almost immediately because I always want whatever it is I'm going to present to be correct and to be appropriate. So no half measures. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so it really wasn't an easement period. It was me literally doing my own paperwork for my LLC while taking design courses at Temple University at night. And then word of mouth and I had clients all within a three month period, I was up and rolling. And I felt good about it, of course, but I quickly realized I needed some mentoring. And so that started all while I was, you know, working on projects. But I will say that in the beginning, the design work was really limited to decorating and paint colors and furniture. It wasn't any full on uh, renovation work like what I can do now. Totally. But you, you launch your LLC, you put up a website you launch a podcast. I mean, can you tell me about sort of the full range of services you were offering pretty immediately? Sure. So in the beginning, it was just the design. I did start the website, but I didn't start the podcast until we were on quarantine, which was about, I want to say, I guess that would be a year and a half later. Okay. So it was just decorating in the beginning. Was there, Mm -hmm. I think there was also a real estate piece. Did you have sort of other services that you had designed as packages when you first started? So when I first started, it was primarily e-design or full service design. And my real estate license, I've had that for about 15 years now. So at that time, my real estate license was in escrow, which is kind of like on hold, if you will, for whenever you want to take it off the shelf kind of thing. So that was always something that I did off and on part-time. And during the first year, it was definitely a plan to add that to the services because I knew it would work hand in hand. So by the end of my first year, I did pull that off the shelf Mm -hmm. and immediately I had a client who needed both services. So it just confirmed that it was the right thing for me to do. You know, you have the the e-design jobs, you have some of those decorating jobs, you're doing the real estate. Did it feel manageable at the beginning? At the beginning, it did. So typically, I've always had, I think for the last maybe 15 years almost, it's been me working remote anyway and having you know, a career that allows me a lot of flexibility. So of course, when things slowed down, right after, almost right after I started, 
here comes the pandemic, right? So when things went in slow-mo for everything else, you know, design kind of picked up, ironically. So that's probably why it totally felt manageable. And when people would say, how are you doing all this? I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, (laughs) I'm just doing it. (laughs) They just flexed, (laughs) both of them flexed sort of in the right direction at the right time for you. Mm -hmm. When did that start to not be the case? I would have to say two years ago about things really picked up in all aspects of my life because I was getting married and then you know, corporate, everything still picked up and I'm still juggling things. And I never really had much of a slow period outside of maybe a couple months. So I think then is when I realized that some things had to change and a pivot probably was going to be needed because like many people, when they start a business or follow up on a passion they really love beyond it being a hobby and they're working full time, I don't think the thought, at least for me, it was not initially to leave my corporate job. It was to just make myself more of a priority with doing something that I absolutely always love to do and see where it goes. And that's what happened. So I realized that something was going to have to change, though, with the services or my corporate job, because it was beginning to be a lot. What kind of soul searching did you have to do to figure out what was going to get cut or what was going to get scaled back? So initially, I think for me, I had to have a moment of decision making with, am I going to pursue this full time or not? Because I think you have to get comfortable with a place of knowing you're going to be limited, right? If you're going to do two things, meaning two full-on careers, if you're going to try to run those parallel, then you're going to probably come up mediocre somewhere. And I'm not comfortable. (laughs) That's so honest. That's so honest. (laughs) It's true. And you figure if you have 20 plus years in a certain sector, like I did for corporate, then Of course, I'm feeling like the expert, right, in everything else that I'm doing. And so obviously here, the beginning was mediocre, right? And it expected because you're new at something. So, and then as far as growth and scaling and all of that kind of stuff and hiring, it just was like, okay, what are you going to do here? So I decided that I would have to limit how many projects, you know, I take on at a time. And then with real estate, I decided to only primarily work and focus on sellers, if at all, and allow it to be passive income and passive, meaning it's a service that's there should a client need both or, you know, see what happens with that. So that's not anything that I ever was really promoting on Instagram or leading with that service anyway. So I think that was kind of easier to tone down. I think sort of the elephant in the room, the thing that I know is maybe the most painful for you was that you had launched a podcast during the pandemic and you've decided to mm-hmm. put that on pause for now. Can you tell me about developing the show, what you gained from it, what it meant to you and why you let it go? Okay. So during a quarantine period, I started off doing some lives, live conversations with design friends on Instagram. I had a moment where when things open back up, everybody's back outside. Okay, how can I continue this? So I started the podcast, which was never really intended to be this polished, formal show. It was really intended to just be casual conversations continued, but using that platform so that people could still listen at their convenience, right? So they didn't have to feel like they had to be participating on live. Um, Once I did that, it ran for about two years 
And that started to become a lot. And then I realized how (laughs) (laughs) just because you can do a lot of things, Kelly, doesn't mean you should. So I had this conversation with myself and I had to decide that it's time to just put that away for now. And so it was a hard decision to make because it, it was something that I did enjoy, but we never really start something with the intention of quitting. Oh gosh, that's so true. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was the thing that made it hard. You gained so much from that show in the earliest stages mm-hmm. of your business. I did. So every time I had a conversation with a designer, I was learning too. And so many designers would DM me and, and say how helpful it is, how much they love it, how transparent the conversations are and how beneficial it was. So literally internally, I felt like Mother Teresa because <laughs> um, it's like now it's my job to yeah. deliver, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so that was definitely an added layer of pressure. Like the letting people down, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the DMs with people sad about this being the last season. So it was it was quite a bit and it was quite a moment that, you know, I had to just internalize and process and then just decide, okay, well, this is something I still have to do for me and for the business. As you were weighing kind of what stays, what goes, why was the show on the chopping block for you? How did you, what were you prioritizing as you move forward? Initially, the prioritization is the business, and that's the service that I started out to do and to provide. And in order for that to thrive, of course, that always had to be priority. So when I looked at what else are you doing on that list, there was the podcast. There were, I'm also a social person, so there were things that I would attend. Um, even online and not really realizing how much of time that takes. So I had to cut back on that. And then just the fact that what made, I think what made the podcast a little cumbersome for me as well was the scheduling and trying to accommodate other people's schedules. Then you know how that goes. <laughs> so, and if we know about changes, that, yep. <laughs> yes. So it becomes a challenge. And um, so it just becomes a point where, okay, if this is not, my main objective here, I am not making money and this is not servicing people in the way that I set out for it to because it's now not being consistent. Right. You know, and so that's another thing. That's part of my brand with my clients and in general is showing up and being consistent. And so I felt like, again, there's that mediocre word that came to mind, like, (laughs) this is not giving right now what it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. So if it's not going to roll out every Friday or, you know, certain things, then I couldn't do it. So that was the other part of the decision making was the consistency factor. That was major for me. Along the way, and kind of in the middle of this process, you also moved your design business into a brick and mortar space. Mm -hmm. Why was that so important for you? And what did that add to the business? One, I felt like I needed to be in a different environment because working from home primarily for the corporate grid and then just switching from the HP laptop to the MacBook, that wasn't enough. I Same felt like desk, I needed different to- computer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and sometimes not even stopping to eat dinner in between. So I felt like to avoid burnout, I needed to create some type of separation and not to mention the packages that pile up in your house when you're right. running a business out of home. And then for the business, I felt like I wanted to be 
I would say in an area where I wanted to target clients also and where I wanted to exist to be able to actually entertain meetings with um, vendors more, um, potentially have, you know, just that kind of flexibility to do those things too. How do you use that space today? When I first signed up for the office, it was this great low price, right? And because there was a need for property management to fill the, some of those spaces. So fast forward a year later when it was time to renew, the cost of the lease was probably going to almost double, which was not going to be sustainable for me. So they had an option where I could still maintain space there without having a personal office. So today it looks totally different because when I do go there, I'm usually in a common area or I can be in a room for that day, but I don't have the personal office there anymore the way that I had it before. And it actually worked out for the better because upon moving into a new house, which happened probably almost two months ago now, I have a separate space where it's actually a square footage is double of what I had before. And it has a private entrance and all that. So I can still actually use this space here to do those things that I that I wanted to do on the other end of the spectrum. So it looks a little different, but it feels much better. Did creating that separation change the way you worked? I think what it did for me was gave me a little less feeling of burnout. I mean, because, you know, being somewhere different where you look out a window and you just see something different than the kitchen table or (laughs) whatever that looks like at home. So it definitely gave me clarity to be more creative and just to have that dedicated time, you know, like, okay, almost like a feeling of I'm at work, but I'm here for my business now, you know. Can you talk me through kind of the differences in that virtual the designer partner, and then the full service design offering. How did you segment out your services into those three? And what did they each kind of mean to you, require from you? And who's the right client for each one? So e-design, virtual design, that's completely virtual, probably in another state. Uh, This fall, it was New York and Texas. And um, that service it, include, it does include a Zoom consultation. Everything else is virtual. What are you delivering for that, that e-design offering? Is that like floor plans and mood boards and like a shopping list? Yep, exactly. All of those things. Yes. So for virtual design, it is. That's the deliverable is always, it's always a mood board and, you know, floor plan and the shopping list. And then the 3D rendering is optional because okay. clients don't always necessarily need that. It started actually last year when I had so much going on in the fall and an entrepreneur reached out to me to help him with um, like a, a hookah lounge. Okay. So when he reached out to me, I knew there was no way I could take on a full design project, but I wanted to help him because I understood the position he was in. So I told him I would come out for, you know, the consultation and he could purchase a block of hours for me to help him you know, with certain things that he needed my advice on. And then we would finish it virtually where I would source the things that he needed. And then he made his own purchases and we went from there. And I realized right then and there that that, there's a need for it. And it totally was this year um, a couple of times where it just fit that client, you know. And one, actually the second one was another business. And then the third was a residential project. And then they do all their own project management. 
Yes. Which is amazing. It is. And it's really, I think it's really designed for the person who can do a virtual or e-design project, but maybe they have their own resources. So one particular um, client, it's an art museum, and they have a team, you know, that was going to execute everything. I think there was a little bit of a breakdown. And so it was a need to bring me back in and take over full time, which was fine. Um, because I don't think people also always realize how much they're getting ready to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so that's where it kind of works in our favor in a sense to say, you know, you can transition into, we can always do another contract or do an addendum. So, but yeah, and the full design scope actually is everything from soup to nuts and including renovation, which was something I actually was a little bit intimidated by initially, but um, I actually love renovation projects now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what changed? I think what changed is I tackled one in my house first. I'm going to be fully transparent because I'm a person that even with all the trades I actually vetted, I have used them for one reason or another myself first. So I'm the type of person that I can learn quickly, but I have to try it myself from beginning to end. And once I saw that it's achievable and clients just have to understand that it's the time frame around it and what their life is going to look like while we're renovating, if they can accept that, then we're good. And I think for me, the intimidation was getting a client to understand that or either even accept it because, you know, everybody wants microwave popcorn in one second. <laughs> needs three minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> how did you approach billing for all three of these? And how have you thought about setting a price tag for the work you're doing? So e-design, which is the virtual design, that has to be paid in full up front. It's a flat fee. And I came up with the fee by calculating how many hours it takes me to do the yeah. project. And there's a clause in there that says, you know, you get one revision. If it's anything above that, then the hourly fee will kick in, which you'll be billed in advance for. Um, and then for the full service design, even with the hybrid, that's a little different because it's one fee for a design, right? The flat fee design, how long it's going to take me to come up with this design, but the project management um, it's something that I didn't realize early on I should be charging for. So essentially I was working for free almost. Yeah. <laughs> so. Until you, until you start to realize that that is 80% of the project, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because once you pick out all the pretty stuff and you get it approved, you now have to order it, track those orders, provide <laughs> updates. Um, I do a weekly update every Friday. So it comes with a lot of demand on my life. And I just recently, actually this year, I implemented a monthly billing for hours, which is for the project management part of the project. And that doesn't start until demo day. So the expectation is the design fee is one amount and that's paid a certain way. And then it's usually 60% upfront. And then the balance is once we have a definitive final install date, that's paid. And in between that point, you know, it's every month, however many hours I had to spend with the contractors, you know, going to source your drapery, work with the workroom, all of those things are billed hourly. 
that initial design fee and the full service, is that the same fee then as that designer partnership so that people can sort of easily convert if they decide they don't want to manage their own project after all? It is. Mm -hmm. It is because, and I think, I'm I'm so glad you asked me that, Caitlin, because (laughs) early on, I always felt like I had to offer that service for less money, but it takes the same amount of time to develop a concept. So the price is the price. (laughs) And the truth is, the rest is what clients quickly will find out. It takes a lot of time, you know, to do themselves. So, and I I don't always find out if they really even finished the project. And I always tell clients to be realistic because it would be a shame to pay, you know, this money for this amazing plan if you don't, one, have the time and two, have the money to actually get it all done. I love that you just said to me, the price is the price. How did you get comfortable sort of <laughs> owning that? What did it take for you? Oh, so it took some time. It took experience. It took me working till 1 a.m. in a client's house before they moved in as a turnkey project um, to realize that that was insane. And it was <laughs> insane if I wasn't being compensated for it, right? <laughs> so... It took me a whole bunch of projects where I was being overworked and also just feeling different about the work because I love when people say, if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. And that's not 100% true all the time. There are parts of it that definitely feel like work. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right? Right. Who made that phrase up? Because it's not true. (laughs) Uh -uh. But I think it's, it's only not true if you're not charging what your value is. For me, that's what I experienced. And I and once I got to the point where I felt confident enough to say, you know, listen, it doesn't matter if I was doing this for three years or 10 years. If you call me for a reason, if you like what I can offer you, then I don't think I should charge, you know, thousands of dollars less than the next person just because of that being a reason. And I think a lot of people get that imposter syndrome and deal with that. But yeah, it took the experience of just being overworked and overwhelmed and feeling like, you know, I can't run a profitable business either if the numbers aren't mathing, you know, in a way that makes sense. We're taking a quick break to remind you that On Creativity returned this spring with a new season of special guests, including Sarah Michelle Geller, Tricky Stewart and the Dream, Anna Swee, Emily Giffen, and Jamie Beck. On Creativity is the official podcast of the Savannah College of Art and Design, one of the top-ranked universities for creative careers. Tune in today to listen to On Creativity's full catalog of award-winning episodes wherever you get your podcasts. What does balance look like for you today? Uh, Balance. (laughs) I'm still trying to find better balance. I'll say that. But balance now looks like I'm saying no more to certain projects that I know for a fact um, won't benefit me or the client. Um, Whether it's not something I want to take on or whether it's just too much. So that looks like better balance for me business-wise these days. And also personally, you know, making decisions not to go to certain things, not to, you know, attend 
all of those things help create better balance for me now because there was a time when I absolutely loved my career and I actually still do. I don't hate it. So that's the difference between me and some people, <laughs> you know? Right. You're not like itching to get out. Right. So yeah, I think just understanding also too, that I have to have a really solid foundation before I can scale properly because I tippy-toed into um, growing the business in that regard, and I wasn't ready last year. It wasn't a great time. What do you mean? What happened? So I hired a virtual assistant and an in-person assistant, and the virtual assistant was more of an admin role, and then the person who was going to assist me here was going to be a design assistant, and I just realized that I, I don't think I was in a good place to manage that because here's the thing. I think some people forget you have to take time to teach someone and train someone. Right. Right. And how do you properly do that if you're trying to still get things done? So I found myself literally paying them and then I was doing the work anyway or redoing it because I didn't like how something was done. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a lot. It's a whole lot. So I have a very small team, but primarily I'm responsible for the intricate parts, you know. And then on the admin side, I do have an assistant who will go in. I have a team email and she'll go in and read those emails and copy me when when things are sent okay. and all that. And then I have, you know, another person who helps with returns and all the things I don't have time to do after projects are over. From a project perspective, I know you've also shifted your focus in terms of what kind of projects you want to say yes to. What, mm-hmm. in quantity, in scale, in scope, what are you working on now? And how has, how has that been a better fit? I think now for me, the focus is more on the aesthetic that I think attracts clients to me and not just anything. Like, for example... <laughs> Someone hired me to do farmhouse glam in a dining space, and it was something that wasn't necessarily my aesthetic, but I did it, and it gave me the challenge of a lifetime, believe me. But now I wouldn't take that project on, mainly because I would think they should find a designer who specializes in that. I recently also have two clients that I've been working in their home since last year, which feels great. Um, as opposed to doing just one space, um, literally moving through the entire home and with renovation involved and all the things that designers love to just indulge in. So this feels great. So I think going forward, I recently discovered I have a love for bathroom renovations and powder rooms. So that's something that I feel is becoming more naturally a niche for me that I want to explore more. Is the goal when you look ahead to someday make design your full-time career? Or do you think keeping a foot in the corporate world is important to you long-term? That's an interesting question. I'm in the process of that now, actually. I've already started, coming into this year, I had already started uh, processing that and planning to make the transition. And then it's funny because every now and then I'll talk to a designer and they have, they share things with me like, I don't know, I should have stayed or, you know, it's certain things that you hear that will, that are definitely impactful because it makes you think, right? Yeah. Um, But one of the things I have to constantly remind myself is that other people's experiences aren't necessarily going to be mine. And so 
the short answer is yes, I do plan to make the full transition. How and when is what I'm still working on now. But ideally, it would look like me doing design full time. And because I feel like I'm already doing it full time. Let's just say that. (laughs) So I'm already doing it full time. Um, but it would look like real estate going a little bit more to to supplement and to be because it's also a passion. It's not like I'm just selling houses because I need to make more money. It's something I love to do. So and I love to help people and they kind of work together. So that's what that would look like. Just removing that corporate piece so that the other two can t- can flourish. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what happens. It's almost like trying to rewrite your own story and then watch it unfold and do the work all at the same time. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I feel like you have, because of that corporate career, an immense amount of transferable skills. (laughs) And I think transferable skills are something really important to celebrate as people listening to the show and beyond are thinking about launching a design career. Mm -hmm. When did you realize what a rich toolkit you had already to put design projects into motion? And what are some of the most useful tools from that corporate career that you use every day in your design work? I realized that you have to, you have to have the ability to have critical thinking, um, being able to make hard decisions, also communication. I mean, that is like, 50% of being effective, right? Right. And that's all the unsung stuff. Yeah, for sure. And for me, I realized that you have to have that clear communication. Professionalism is obviously um, something that's needed, but it's not always received out here. Someone asked me before about how do you communicate with contractors because they're not always the most professional, but it doesn't change my style. So I need an email. I'm not texting you everything. I have to email you, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. so there's those things you just have to have in place and um, project management. I mean, that is a lot of what we do unless you have a big firm and you don't even if you're just a principal designer and you're not responsible and you have an operations person. I can't wait to get to that point. (laughs) But until then, I have to be okay with, okay, time blocking. This is the day or this is the time of day. I need to check all the emails to see where things are, you know, having a system in place. How do you bring that to a client? Literally the same way. So Mm -hmm. I try to educate clients. Like there are some clients who really, they have great income. They just don't really get the value and spending more on certain things. And so there's a great opportunity for me to say, you know, listen, if you were shopping and you saw this bag or these shoes and you just love how they look, you don't really care how much it costs. You're going to buy it. Right. So for me, the furniture has to be approached differently, but almost the same mindset because what looks nice isn't always nice. We know that, right. You can go into a retail furniture gallery where the quality is, you know, mixed. So it's up to me to explain to a client, you know, this sofa here, you're going to have this for, you know, 10, 20 years versus five years. And the cushions aren't going to look ridiculous after you get up every time, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I think that's a big part of it too. Um, The sales piece of it, nobody likes to talk about that, but that has a lot to do with convincing and making a client, you know, understand things. But yeah, it's an interesting rabbit hole that we can go down, but 
are you using those sales skills when you are talking to clients about product or about design concepts and ideas? Absolutely. Um, So in my corporate life, I haven't had to have sales, you know, used much. But in real estate, of course, it's all sales, right? So being authentic, believing in what it is that you're talking about, that's sales 101. And I literally will tell people sometimes, I'm not here to sell you a car, right? Right. If you have to want, you have to feel the need and appreciate the value in the service. Otherwise, you know, you'll be questioning everything and I can't work that way. So that whole approach and understanding, if I don't convert every consultation into a project, then I'm not doing a good job. And I can honestly say out of all the consultations I've been on, I can count on one hand how many did not sign a contract. Um, So I think that's important for people to understand. Um, Seeing you on Instagram and then you going into someone's house and really driving home what it is that you can do for them is two, there are two different things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Those are two different things. So I think that's an important piece that um, some people aren't good salespeople, um, but that doesn't mean they're not good creators. So I think that's where training and experience and having a mentor can, can be helpful. But I think sales is a big piece of it for sure. Because then even when it comes down to later in a project and, you know, if a client can't make their mind up on what they want to approve, if it's a collaborative effort, then you have to be able to say, well, if it was me, this is what I would do, but it's it's you. So because of what I have observed and what I know, what I've gotten to know, and that's the other piece, you have to know your client, right? So those questionnaires and those questions you ask, that's how you're going to understand what to sell them. What comes next for you? What what is sort of the next building block as you as you look ahead? I think what's next is actually what's now. It's everything that's already happening to be honest. It's I will say that I have started influencing more and engaging in um vendors and companies for partnerships. So that looks like something that definitely would be more um, involved in me sharing my home and having a new house that needs design work almost in every single room. (laughs) So that's something I look forward to sharing. So I would have to say that's next and it's more to come. I'm literally working on two spaces now, um, one in partnership with a company that I'm a brand ambassador for now. And then the other is just literally a home project that I'm sharing. What's the strategy around your own home? Do you see that as a good vehicle for business growth? A hundred percent, because it's almost free marketing. One of the reasons why I shared my powder room project at my last house as part of the one room challenge that a lot of designers will participate in, right? And at that point in time, I felt like I was not getting clients who were request who would request things that I wanted to do and that I knew I could do. So I renovated my own powder room and shared it. And I immediately got three clients right after that, shortly after I'll say, that wanted that type of work. And it proved to me that in order to go further, you ha- you're going to have to kind of put work in and actually share it. And I think having full creativity at home is how you're going to share what you can do. Otherwise, if you're not getting the clients that will hire you for it, then you have to figure out how to show it. So for me, I used home as somewhat of a marketing tool in that respect. 
So we'll see your home unrolling or unfolding on Instagram in the coming months. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I've been sharing <laughs> my floors. I <laughs> showed the ugly carpet we pulled up. Um, so, yeah, it's and I saved a highlight on the feed so that, yeah. you know, if when people discover you, they can kind of see what you're doing and it's home 2023. So, yeah, I look forward to sharing more of that. And, you know, hopefully that will add to not only my own personal gain at home for us as a family, but also for the business. I want to talk about the idea of being new at something, because that's also a really kind of raw emotional experience on its own. It's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> and the best example I can give you is going from an Instagram page where it's private with 200 followers to having the courage to start a public page and show your Z Gallery table every week on this on this Instagram platform. <laughs> Yeah, that you're super proud of. But okay, now what? Right. So, you know, how do you build on Instagram? You know, you start off with sharing inspiration. That's a real slippery slope. Right. So being new at something was something that I had to get comfortable with and okay with because I hadn't been new at anything in years. You know, I can do my job in my sleep. I'm the person who trains new people. (laughs) Right. That's something that it takes, I'll just say it takes a lot of courage and it does, you have to put yourself in a position to be vulnerable because otherwise you're going to miss some steps that you have to learn. The social media piece is such another layer to that because it's not only saying, okay, I'm new, I'm going to be figuring it out, but I'm new and I'm going to be figuring it out while a bunch of people on the internet watch me maybe screw up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How have you approached Instagram especially, but social media in general, as you built your business, what role has it played for you? So it took me some time to be okay with showing up as my whole self. I'll say that, right? Because when you go from being a very private person to understanding that you have to almost sell yourself, right, in public so that you can not only get business, but establish a platform that you can feel good about. And so for me, what I realized during a pandemic and quarantine period was it's okay to share what I'm cooking for dinner in my story, right? Mm -hmm. But in my stories, I understood that I needed to connect with people because it's about relationships ultimately. And people want to know that you are a real person. And it, it went a long way for me because I've built a lot of different relationships in the industry and with clients that way. People who have said they followed me for months or, you know, they knew where I went on my honeymoon to. They remember <laughs> certain things yeah. I've shared. So, you know, because people will buy into you quickly before they will buy into your service. You can get an interior designer. I mean, we're everywhere now. So <laughs> it's not hard to find one of us. So I think that was the that was the piece that I kind of just honed in on and got comfortable with it and just just did it. Like I just showed up and I realized that you might not get all the likes and I didn't care. I wasn't doing it for likes. It was really for me to kind of just show the world a little bit of who I am here. What is the one thing you know now that you wish you had known when you launched your design business? I think what I now know that I wish I could tell myself in the beginning is that you are going to make mistakes and that is okay. It's part of learning. You know, I think sometimes people put an expectation out here that means you have to be perfect and it's not true. Um, 
So that's one of the things that resonate with me immediately because I have been previously somewhat of a perfectionist with everything else. And it's paralyzing, says Mm -hmm. a fellow perfectionist. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. So when you figure out you purchase a rug that's way too big for somebody's dining room, (laughs) then you take photos and you don't see it until you look at the photos. Those are the novice mistakes that, you know, at that time felt devastating. But looking back, it's like I would have wish I would have knew in that moment. It's okay. You'll be okay. You'll figure it out. What does success look like for you now? Oh, that's an interesting question because it has changed for sure. Um, Success looks nothing like it used to. It looks like doing something that I love and not having a monetary value attached to it, per se. Um, And just feeling like when clients trust me 110%, that feels like success. The one client I have who I've been working from room to room, I have my lockbox on their home and I wasn't their realtor, but because I am a realtor, I had my handy dandy lockbox when I started the project and they said it was perfectly fine to use it before they moved in, right? And then when they moved in, hearing them tell me it's okay, they'll keep the lockbox on because they want me to be able to have access when they're at work and traveling. That feels like success to me because that means that my clients trust me and that's important to me, you know? So that is what success feels like right now. What are some of your old definitions of success that you've let go of? Oh, geez. My old definitions of success started with getting the job that pays six figures and figuring out when that came and went, (laughs) there's more (laughs) because that's not (laughs) success. So long since those days and feeling like things that are tangible had to be related to success, like the big house, you know, the dream house or the vacation home or five vacations a year. Those are the things that used to make me feel like, okay, you're successful, but not anymore. That's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you for taking time to talk to me. I appreciate it, and I'm happy to share. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, more great podcasts, check out new products, or browse job openings, head on over to businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the show or a story of your own to share, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me at tradetales@businessofhome.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the show. Trade Tales is produced by me, Caitlin Peterson, with Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke. This episode was edited by Caroline Burke and Michael Castaneda. Our theme music is by Kyle Scott Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again in two weeks.